0: Welcome to Cruxcast. Whether you're in your car, at work, or at home, we hope you enjoy this interview. And if you do, you can find more like it on cruxinvestor.com. So please subscribe. We speak today to Alex Edmonds, who is author of Grow the Pie. He's also a professor at London Business School, previously at Wharton as well. He's formerly uh, an investment analyst and is now a professor of financial investment. An unusual mix, but we wanted to talk to him because when companies come and approach us, we often ask them, what's the problem you're solving and how do I make money? Whereas Alex asked a much more interesting question, which is, why is the world a better place because your company's in it? And That led us into a conversation around purpose, a company's purpose versus profit. And Alex hypothesises that companies can serve a positive purpose to society and still make profit. And he's got the data to mix it up. It was a fascinating conversation. And to tell you how fascinating I thought it was, for the first 25 people who write to me at Matthew at CruxInvestor.com, I'll send you a free copy. So enjoy what Alex has to say. Hello Alex. How are you,
1: sir? Great. Thanks, Matt. Great to be here. Thanks for having me on. Well, wonderful. Um,
0: Thank you very much. We wanted to talk to you because we saw your book, Grow the Pie. You've got some fantastic thinking in there. Uh, I think it'll shake up a few uh, stereotypes in the market, the way that perhaps people perceive how business should be run. And just to back that up, I just want to say to people watching the show, we are going to give away 25 free copies for the first 25 people who leave a note below in the YouTube description or indeed on uh, Twitter or any of the social media accounts. Well worth a read. If you don't win a free book, I uh, suggest you go out and buy it because there's a lot of good stuff in there. So, Alex, just wanted to put that out there because I think at the end of one of your uh, lectures, you talk about the fact we've all got a part to play. And I hope that in some small way uh, gives a little bit of something back to society so but can you give us really appreciate that thanks well can you give us a little bit of um, background about you where have you, where have you come from what's your history what's your What's your recent history and you know how have you come to put this book together?
1: Yeah so my current job is I'm a professor of finance at London Business School but I've not always done that job so after university I went to the city as most people who study economics might do so I did investment banking at Morgan Stanley I first covered chemicals clients and then financial institutions and I really enjoyed that job so there's many people who are ex-bankers who get beaten up and, and mistreated but I did find it really interesting but Why did I choose to leave? Is that when you work on a deal, that's great. You're solving one company's problems at that one time. Whereas as an academic, by writing research or writing a book, that could be timeless. So the, the topics of profit and purpose, which we'll explore later in this, in this talk, that can apply to many companies in different industries throughout the world. So the bandwidth of the contribution that you can make is larger. So I did a PhD at MIT in the US, then I was a professor at Wharton for six years. And then seven years ago, I moved back to London to London Business School, where I've been since 2013.
0: Fabulous, fabulous. Uh, well, let's let's talk about one of the phrases you use there: purpose versus profit. You mean that in the context of obviously, you know, how a company should behave, and I think also about how people perceive how companies should behave. So, um, I, I used to be that person. If a company came into our, our bank, as an investment banker, come in and say, "Right, tell me about your story." And if the, if the answer to the question is, you know, what, you know, what are you setting out to do wasn't to make money, I probably wasn't investing. I think latterly, I've changed my, my opinion to that because I think it's a lot more nuanced and complex than that. But tell us about what you have been going through the process of trying to understand what you've learnt and perhaps, you know, why that phrase is a phrase that you repeat um, in this book.
1: Yeah. So, Matt, the thinking that you used to have is actually quite common thinking, which is that purpose is at the expense of profit. So why the book is called Grow the Pie is that the traditional view is that the value that a company creates is given by a fixed pie. So any slice of the pie that you give to society... In the form of wages to workers or taxes to the government or reducing your carbon footprint that's at the expense of investors so you don't want to invest in a company that cares so much about society it's like a fluffy company which is going to be ignoring its shareholders but why it's called grow the pie is that i use a lot of evidence to show that companies that treat their stakeholders well are not sacrificing profits. They're actually increasing the pie, so increasing the total value they create. And so not only do stakeholders benefit, but also investors benefit. And I think that has profound implications for investors. So even if you're not a socially responsible investor, your only goal is to make as much money as possible which is a laudable goal, right? pension funds need to um, satisfy their beneficiaries' needs, you should still consider the purpose of a company and the value that it's delivering to stakeholders because in the long term these factors will be financially material.
0: And so why, what, what do you think is holding uh, CEOs or boards back from that thought process? Do they do they not understand that it's beneficial in the long run? Because we see a lot of companies which talk the ESG story, the um, social resp- corporate social responsibility, and it used to be a tick box exercise. It was a department off somewhere at the back of the building. When it came to PR, you could you could drag them in. You're trying to say actually it's got to be more than that. It's got to be pervasive throughout the organisation. You genuinely. As a, you know, to a man and, and to a woman got to believe in the purpose of the business to succeed.
1: That's absolutely right, Matt. And so why is that thinking so pervasive? Well, I think um, we are trained to think about zero-sum thinking from when we're born. So like the early games that we play as children, if somebody wins, somebody else loses. If you think about the most successful management innovations of the 20th century, they were based on splitting the pie. So Henry Ford, he invented the assembly line that was successful because it made workers work as hard as possible. It made sure they keep up with the pace of production. And even in my old job at uh, an investment bank, there was one day that the vice president caught me laughing. And he said, Alex, uh, you shouldn't laugh in the office. And I asked why. And he said, well, if you're too happy, the managing director will think I'm not a good vice president. I'm not working you hard enough. So the traditional view is let's squeeze as much out of stakeholders as possible by working our employees or by trying to have some creative schemes to minimize our tax. But I think why are things different now in 2020 than in 1920 in in Ford's uh, era? It's because, well, what do we require from employees? It's not just following orders. So if indeed what we want our workers to do is to just turn a cog on an assembly line, I think the best way to do that is with sort of rigid routines. But nowadays, even rank-and-file employees in companies, they're innovating, they're building customer relationships, and something like that requires freedom and delegation and being treated better. And so that's also backed up by the evidence that I'm showing, is that companies that treat their workers better, they're not just fluffy companies which are sort of making a charity case out of themselves, they're
0: actually outperforming in the long term. I'm I'm interested in, um, because we... did a bit of management consultancy back back in the, back in the day you know we, we used to go into large organizations and try and understand what they could be doing better and you're talking about you know turn around stories not just you know financially but throughout the organization and a big a big thought was well if our employees could be just a little bit more entrepreneurial it might help the organization because then they're problem solvers rather than following a template or a set of rules um, within the organisation, and that has got to be good for the organisation. Not only that, they feel better about it because they're, they're part of the solution rather than part of the mechanism or process. So, have you been able to gather data about what? I, I assume you're talking about large enterprise here, rather than you know clearly SMEs. But um, have you been able to gather empirical data which which can like, proves and backs up and validates your, your thinking, or is it? just a thought.
1: So I think this is what's critical about the book, is, is if, we, if I didn't have robust data, you might think that what I'm saying is wishful thinking. It's too good to be true. Yes, it would be great if companies that cared about society magically did better as a byproduct. but maybe that's not the case. And that's indeed why, mad as you say, many managers have this fixed by thinking. Um, but let's go through, to, through one of the many studies that the book um, talks about, which is on employee satisfaction. So there's a data source, the 100 best companies to work for in America. There's a similar list in the UK, but this data source in the US, that started in 1984. So that's really useful because I ran the study until 2011. So I had 28 years of data and that makes sure that any relationship that I find is robust. It's not just a few years we got lucky. And in particular, those 28 years included both recessions and boom, so now we're in a pandemic, people like to think, oh, maybe in a recession, purpose is just a luxury, let's focus on making money. But I found in the data set that the relationship was just as strong in the downtimes and the uptimes. And then what did the actual data contain? Well, it didn't just look at wages, right? Because Henry Ford famously paid his workers $5 a day. That was a lot of money back then even though he treated his workers badly. Instead, what he was able to do, what, what, what the data source looks at, are things such as trust in management, pride in your job, autonomy, delegation. And then finally, where do I come to this data set? Well, as a business school professor, what I like to bring is a lot of rigor because you don't know whether it's correlation or is it causation? So treating your workers better leads to the company doing better, or once the company is doing better, it can spend money on employee gyms and massages and all those things and so what I was able to do was to show that there's actually likely causation so treating your employees better does lead to long-term stock returns and the magnitudes were quite big so over the 28-year period it's 89 to 184% outperformance so this is something that investors should care about it's not just a fluffy non-financial factor.
0: So you, you've got all of this data that's um uh, you know, I think you, t- you talked previously about you know the, the the best company, 100 best companies to work for. And the example I quite liked was what you, when you talked about Costco, for instance. You know, Costco. You think, well, those are the guys who are looking after the pennies. they they It's in the name. The description is in the name. With Costco, it's important to us that our customers get the best value, best deal. You would have thought shaving the the company, the employees' salaries, um, reducing uh, perks or benefits to employees was, was the name of the game there, but you tell a different story.
1: Yeah, you would have thought so. And indeed, at the time I wrote my paper, there was a big controversy that Costco was paying its workers $20 per hour when the national average was $11. And indeed, there was an equity analyst in Business Week saying, well, that's crazy. Why would I want to buy a stock with double the cost base of its competitors? And indeed, even people who can see that employee well-being might matter. They think it might matter in a pharmaceuticals company or in a software company where you have skilled employees, whereas you might think in Costco, well, the employees might not be as adding as much value as, as those other companies. But what I found was that the relationship was just as strong in retail as it was in pharmaceuticals. Why? Well, the employees are the front lines, so whether the employees are motivated or not, Willing to go the extra mile to help their their customers had a large effect on customer satisfaction, and then ultimately upon long-term stock returns.
0: So, are you seeing any change in attitude between? You know, you you, talk, you mentioned pandemic there. Obviously, we're we're all in the middle of it right now. You know, um, you, you're you're in London, and you you probably see the effects of it more than I would, just being slightly outside of London. But it, you know, it's a glo- it's a global pandemic. Um, Behavior changes, decision making changes, because unlike a financial crisis where people got to point fingers at bankers, um, yeah. this is much more personal. It's much, it's much more personal. The UK government, for instance, um, were very quick. I thought, and you know, I, I, I was surprised when they did this furlough arrangement, paying eighty percent or up to eighty percent of people's. Uh, salaries for businesses which uh, would otherwise have to lay people off—that's that, a—I thought it was a very generous uh, move, and I think it was very well received, and I've not seen anything else like it in the world. But for corporations making those sorts of decisions in times of economic stress, do you think it still makes sense to, you know, continue to um, treat your employees the same way as? you know, perhaps when money is sloshing around, and you touched upon it a second ago, but I want I, to I understand the mentality behind it. Why would you?
1: Well, I think the first thing to know is is um, a, a focus on purpose doesn't mean that you can avoid taking commercial decisions. So there are companies which do need to downsize and shed workers in the pandemic. So anything related to travel, you do need to, to, to get rid of employees. So this idea of purpose doesn't mean we're gonna guarantee jobs for life. And I think that's really important, right? Like, because other advocates of responsible business will say, ah, oh, our company should do the right thing and keep paying their workers, but that's just commercial suicide. And responsible companies do have a responsibility towards shareholders as well as 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 their employees. So for example in Japan, um, there are companies like Toshiba and Panasonic where employees used to make magnetic tape, and uh, they're obviously out of jobs now, but rather than making them redundant, they continue to employ them, and they just sit in the office and review security footage, right? That creates no um, value to society. Those jobs aren't providing those people dignity. It's much better to, unfortunately, to let them go and help them find another job. But obviously, what a responsible company does Is it does it in a humane way so airbnb i think is a great example so they've seen like the writing is on the wall even when we recover from this there's going to be less travel we need to let some employees go otherwise we might need to let more go in the future but let's do this in a humane way so we're going to give them i believe it was 14 weeks of of um severance pay even though the legal minimum was much much lower we're going to give them one year of healthcare benefits, because this is a time where healthcare is really important, we're gonna allow them to keep their laptops because they need that in order to find a new job. So there, even when they made a tough commercial decision, then where does purpose come in? It's not to shy away from that decision, but to make that decision in a humane way, and if it involves paying a little bit extra to help them, why is that commercially good? Well, number one, it means that the employees that stay Right, they probably do care about the ones who left and they're quite happy that they'll be motivated by the fact they were treated fairly. Customers right, are more likely to go to Airbnb if we understand that it's a company which does treat society fairly. And then next time is a recruitment drive, right, so if indeed the economy picks up and people will know that in a downturn, well actually Airbnb is a company which is going to treat its workers fairly, that's going to be a great recruiting device.
0: See that's interesting. I'd like to, if we can, just describe the parameters there, because you've given us, a, a, you've extended the boundary in my mind as to what it means, what purpose means. So perhaps now we can describe that. Because if you think of it in the context of there are, you know, altruism. People talk about altruism. There are, you know, there are, and some philosophers would argue there are no selfless acts. And in some of the descriptions you gave there or examples you gave there, the company's purpose is, yes, I need to treat these, I'm going to let these people go and I'll do it in, a, in the best way possible, but then it's, it's, it's good for my bottom line. Plus, it'll help me retain the people who I'm not letting go. Uh, they'll think better of me and perhaps might hang around and work a little bit harder. So can you just help to you know, square the circle there with regards to w- w- what, what is the extent of the boundary for purpose within a corporate context?
1: That's a fantastic question, right? Because you might think, well, the way I've described it, purpose is no different from enlightened self-interest, right? I am doing these things in order to get a better image, in order to make sure that employee motivation doesn't drop. And indeed, right, if, if you think of how people typically make decisions, they do that instrumental calculation. So when you think, do I build a factory, I can calculate, well, how many widgets the factory is going to produce, how much I can sell them for, and I can compare that to the cost. And that's indeed what finance professors like me have been teaching for 50 years, what you do net present value analysis. But why that doesn't work is for intangible assets, such as in your employees, because how can you calculate what is the effect of giving these 14 weeks of severance pay on everybody else's motivation and how much more money will I make Well, we don't know that. We've got some sense of, yes, there might be some benefits in the long term, but we can't calculate that. And so that's why I think purpose is different from enlightened self-interest is that it will encourage us to do things even if we can't calculate the benefit of doing so. Just like let's take an individual's decision. So in your life, you might know people who are helpful people who, who help without expecting anything in return, and those who are calculating. So they will help if you can, they can call on a favor later. And it's likely that actually the first set of people become more successful, right? Because unexpectedly, it might be that they need to call on a favor later, and you'll help them because you know that they are just generally altruistic people, even though they could have never made that calculation at the outset. So the idea is that actually freeing yourself from having to justify every decision with their calculation actually means you make better investments and more long-term decisions, which ultimately make you more successful.
0: I mean, you give the example um, of Merck in terms of back in the day with regards to penicillin. I mean, if you, if you talk people through that and you know, you know, what you think the long-term benefits for Merck were in that instance, because it was a big, big move, obviously. So um, what do you, what do you, what's your take on that?
1: Yeah, so that was the case where in 1942, Merck discovered penicillin. It tested penicillin and it was able to save somebody's life. And then after finding that, you might think, well, are they going to jack up the price and make as much money as possible? Maybe that would happen with the first company to find a coronavirus cure. But what Merck did is it chose to share the secrets of how to make penicillin with its closest rivals. Why? In 1942, there was the Second World War, and it needed to make sure that the Allied forces had enough penicillin. And as a byproduct of that, Merck became very successful. Why? Because, well, if you were, say, a bright graduate thinking, well, which firm to join, I'd like to join Merck. Or if you're an investor thinking, well, where do I want to invest? I do care, obviously, about financial returns, but maybe social returns as well, and actually even hedge funds, interestingly are still are starting to think about these other factors. Why? Because their end investors might be pension funds or university endowments. Now, with that Merck story, I cannot claim that that one factor choosing to donate um, penicillin is what caused Merck to be successful afterwards. There could be many many other factors. But again, that's the scale of large scale data. So we want to be careful about over-extrapolating from one story, right? You can always find any story to support whatever you want to support, right? And there's loads of TED Talks and books which which do that. But what I wanted to do is to look at large-scale data. So while in the book there are a lot of real-world examples, it's written for practitioners, not academics. Every real-world example that I show is backed up by large-scale data showing that that still holds as a general principle.
0: Do you think that is sustainable within uh, an enterprise? Because if, if you look at the, the humble beginnings of Google, you know, do you no know evil was their very easy to understand strapline. Okay. And I think very quickly people would say, well, that's possibly no longer the case, um, you know, with, within 10, 15 years. As companies grow, as the, C, as the board, as the management, as the CEO evolves, as money comes into play, decision-making gets more complex. Uh, companies change, their needs change. And yes, there may have come from, uh, it will be driven by a purpose originally, but as they evolve, does it become harder and harder for enterprises to deliver on that promise of, uh, of the original purpose, or does the purpose change?
1: Yeah, so I think this is great because we've we've talked about the word purpose without formally defining it. And so let me actually now formally define it, is that often people think that a purposeful company is an altruistic one, right? It's one that serves everybody. But actually, if you think about what the word purposeful means, it means targeted, right? So a purposeful meeting is one with a clear agenda. If I do something on purpose, I'm doing something deliberately, So I think what a purposeful company needs to know is that it's not here to solve all the world's problems. And actually, controversially, I might suggest that a purposeful company might have to do evil. Why? Because there's sometimes some trade-offs, right? A purposeful company is not about being all things to all people, but recognises which are the stakeholders that it should particularly focus on. So let's take some energy companies at the moment. So some of them are transitioning towards low carbon. And in order to do that they will have to close some factories and do evil by making people redundant so what purpose involves is actually to be quite rigorous and disciplined and discerning and to say well what do i want to do more of but what do i need to do less of and what do i need to deprioritize in order to focus on the one thing that i'm going to do to move the needle most so i would say purpose is the answer to the question how is the world a better place by my company being here? And the answer to that should be focus, just like a person's purpose would never to be a doctor and a lawyer and a banker and a teacher. Right? You'd be one of those things. And so for com- this is why I do think purpose can be commercial and can be consistent with long term shareholder returns, is it's not about satisfying everybody. It's knowing where to focus on and where to scale back.
0: So, I mean, it seems to have a lot of, there's a lot of leeway here, but you're saying the the general direction is well, not to say altruistic as we say, but you know you, you can't be all things to all men as you point out. But I was coming from the point of view: you know, what problem are you trying to solve? What why is the world a better place for this company being here? Because it's got a better, quicker, cheaper way of solving the problem that you know pe- people every every day people face. So, given the leeway in what you're you're arguing here. How, how do you? How do you? Um, again, coming back to measurement and data, how can an organisation measure this profit versus purpose um, equation to know whether or not it, it should you know stay on course or, or do things start doing things differently?
1: Well, I think it is actually to revolutionise measurement because we've actually never not used the word CSR in this entire interview, which is what people typically think about as purpose. But I don't. I think it's misleading. So CSR is is often the harm that you do, say your carbon emissions and your water usage, and even companies which are taking purpose seriously, they're trying to measure stuff, but they're typically measuring CSR. So how much bad do you do? Are you trying to do less evil? Well, actually, I think purpose is about actively doing good. So what problem you're trying to solve? So as another practical example, take Vodafone. So in 2012, they did a great thing, which was they were very transparent about their taxes. They produced the world's first tax transparency report in the telecoms industry, showing that they were paying, I believe it was £12 billion of tax. But that's CSR, right? That's showing how much harm they were doing, perhaps by, not avoiding, by avoiding tax. Instead, I think what was more about purpose was Vodafone in 2007 launching m which was a mobile money service in Kenya, which provided financial inclusion to the unbanked, and that lifted 200,000 households out of poverty, the majority of whom were were women. And so I think companies need to move it away from just trying to um, try, trying to report the harm that they do. That's still important. What we do care about carbon emissions and climate change and fair tax, but try to think about measures of how much good they're actively creating. And that could indeed be the number of people that we've provided financial inclusion to. And I think that revolution in the data and the measurement is one of the key areas of responsible business going forward.
0: OK, so if, I, if I'm a CEO and I'm reading your book here, this fine book that you, you've written, um, what should I? What should I be thinking? What should I be doing? Because if I if I look at certain industries, I know that they have no desire to listen to what you've got to say because they're doing quite well. Pharmaceutical. We, we talked about Merck earlier. Okay, let's talk. Let's come back to pharmaceutical. Reputationally, um, they it's not good, right? People people think of them as. Uh, you know, the medicines should be you know for, for accessible to all of us, and I think some countries, you know, the UK being one of them, Canada, Australia, etc. You know, would would back that up. But there are many, many places where these pharmaceutical companies are hiking prices up because they can. No one's stopping them. It's going unchecked. We, you know, us everyday guys are sort of seeing these companies um, with a huge disregard and disdain for any of these kind of rather, you know good and you know, well-meaning and well-intentioned statements that you're making, could you ever persuade a company like that to start thinking differently?
1: I, I think you can. And, and I think the first way to start is to say, well, actually purpose need not be at the expense of profit. So pharmaceutical companies do need to make money and they need to charge actually high prices for drugs that are successful. Why? Because 90% plus of new drugs they fail and we couldn't have the innovation on these new drugs if we didn't allow pharmaceuticals companies to make money on their existing drugs. So there's, there's nothing evil about making money but there is sort of a, a limit when you think about, well, is, uh, am I charging high prices here because I can completely get away from with it because I've got a local uh, monopoly? Or is it because, well, I think I'm getting a a fair return on all the R&D that I've done? And I can't tell you what is the fair price, just like I can't tell anybody what is the fair amount to give to charity. Right? There's no sort of uh, clear formula for that. But there's certainly the thought process, is the way that I'm creating money for my shareholders because I am growing the pie, creating drugs, which people are willing to pay a lot for because they are actually having a, a big benefit, or is it through exploiting people? And one other example I use in my book is the example of of Turing Pharmaceuticals, this famously unpopular guy, Martin Shkreli in the US, who bought existing drugs and hiked the prices. So that was clearly pie-splitting, he was not innovating, he was just changing what was already there. But if instead, companies do innovate, they spend a lot of money and then they choose to charge high prices to recoup that innovation and to fund some other innovation that I don't think is is immoral. That's just part of the research process. Research is expensive and we need profits in order to pay for that. And if if you look at, say, the statements by CEO um, of Merck, Kenneth Frazier, he's got a great Harvard interview, right there, you do see that actually a pharmaceutical CEO does think that purpose matters, and is not just making nice statements for an interview. But there's many things that they're doing to try to put this into practice.
0: Okay, so you you mentioned earlier about the behaviour of some of the funds. They're they're moving into you know gre- literally greener past, pastures. They're, you know CSG is important. You know some of our audience invest in mining, and you know that has been a seismic shift, pardon the, pardon the pun, uh, to um, mm-hmm. you know make sure that it's a very important part of what the company does. Because not well. It, Example, COVID affects um, you know different people in, in, in different ways. But um, you know, various studies have shown that you know First Nations in in, in Canada or even um, down in, in the US are more susceptible for a variety of reasons. Um, you know, and companies shut down very very quickly in those cases to ensure that you know not only their workers but the um, you know, society around them were not endangered by decisions made by miners looking for profit. So I, th- so I think that's, that's you know, an example of the way that attitudes have changed, certainly in mining for instance over the last few years. But also funds, people like BlackRock, they're not investing in coal or dirty coal uh, specifically because um, you know, there are different types of coal. Um, they are being influenced by their shareholders. Um, obviously, and their, their behaviours are changing in terms of what they will and won't invest in. But that's up at that level. You know, again, the, the average guy can't sort of understand or countenance you know, those sorts of decisions. But so what can we do on an everyday level? Can we affect change? So
1: do you mean we as consumers Go, but, and investors? Absolutely absolutely yeah so i I think we can do this in 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 three ways um first as employees um second as consumers and third as individual investors so uh, let's start with employees so often you might think well, I'm in this large organization, which is purposeless, and and I'm just a, a pawn, so how can I change anything? Well, both of us started off as investment bank analysts, and um, there you, you might think, well, here it's really a cutthroat environment, and, and, and um, people are just there for, for the money and so on. But I, I think that's a caricature. So I think what we've seen in the coronavirus crisis is some great actions by a couple of people. Let's say it's um, Captain Sir Tom Moore doing the fundraising, and, and that ignited a nation and led to other people people doing the um, doing fundraising themselves. So I think what I talk about often is the idea of a silent majority. so, It wasn't that everybody used to be um, selfish and is now selfless. It's that people like Sir Thomas um, did create a tipping point and activated that silent majority. So even in a cutthroat investment bank, it's not that everybody else is there for the money. There might be people like you and I who are there because it was an interesting job and it was challenging. But the environment, if you don't take any action, could become one which is dominated by the vocal minority. So, you might think as an analyst, what can we do, like we're so junior, but actually even as an analyst, there were people who worked for me. There was my secretary, there was the IT department, there was, I don't know what it was called in, in your, your bank, Matt, we called it creative services, you might have called it graphics or do you, yes. Do you know?
0: Yes, yeah, the, the, yeah. the graphics the, yeah, graphics department of a marketing team, yeah, crikey, that's going back. <laughs>
1: So, so they were the people where if you had to do a PowerPoint presentation for the client, right, and you needed some line thicknesses or whatever, things changed, you would send it to the graphics department. And they got most abused out of every uh, department. Why? Because the analyst was getting it from the associate, and so you were putting all the stress down to, to the um, graphics department. So there were times when I got work back, which was very good. And and what I did is I called the um, front desk of the graphics department and said, hey, can you put me through to whoever did this job? And they said, yeah, this is a lady called Juliet. And I'd say, hi, Juliet, just to say, this was a really good job, and this is why it was good. And actually, you did this as well, and I didn't even ask for that, thanks for your initiative. And then I didn't do that in any ostensible way, but just because I was so junior, I didn't have my own office, so I was in the open plan. And then other people heard it, me say that, and then thought, well, let me try and do this myself. And then you had other analysts who were also thanking uh, the graphics department. And so that would start to change the atmosphere. So even me, as a really sort of minor and junior person, a few actions can can change the atmosphere and and activate this tipping point. And the phrase I'm going to next use might sound really corny, but I think it is useful. It's to be the thermostat, not the thermometer. Right. The thermometer reflects temperature, the thermostat affects temperature. And that could be in many other ways. Right, We're now um, going through, uh, uh, obviously, the the, the race riots and the uh, Black Lives Matter protests, which obviously I'm, I'm very aligned to. But there, why is it that in some cases there might be discrimination? not just against ethnic minorities, but gender and so on. Sometimes it could be banter in WhatsApp groups or in person or in emails, but just a couple of people just saying, oh, I, I, taking someone aside and saying, actually, I think just be a bit careful with saying this. You might be unintentionally creating offence. I think that could have a, a large effect. So let me just pause here. There's other things I could say for investors and, and, uh, and customers, but that's what I think we can do as, as employees.
0: Okay. And, and obviously you're, you're talking about the ability, not just face-to-face, but I guess today with social media, uh, what it is, its ability to influence and change corporate decision making. We see that a lot every day as well, um, which which I, which I think is fantastic. I, re- I, really, I really do. Everyone's got a voice. Uh, it's a question of uh, being able to filter through and how, for a company, being able to filter through and work out what's in, important uh, in terms of that feedback. Um, well look I mean, that's th- that's a nice little romp through um, your your philosophy that, that that thought process that you've you've gone through. I mean what's the feedback been like? I mean are you able to point at companies that have changed as a result of listening to you because you've got, you've got a couple of um, you've, you've done a couple of TED talks that I can see but you know the TED talk on this topic for instance did did you get any positive feedback on that people asking you questions
1: yeah so um I'll answer this in, in two ways I think one specific the book and one more more generally mm. is that like since I started as being a professor at Wharton in 2007 I've seen this massive shift in the extent to which people are taking purpose seriously so when I was at my first conference in 2007 the investors who were there they were not the blackrocks that you've talked about they were socially responsible investors with only a social mission they weren't the mainstream companies but nowadays right the mainstream investors are taking this really seriously because they're seeing this as financially material and similarly ceos are increasingly not seeing this as something which is part of a csr department to be delegated to them but something which is about how are we going to do business, it's something which is a CEO level issue. And then in terms of the book, even though it's only been out two months, um, I know three large institutional investors where they've bought the book for many, many of their senior investment professionals are having internal meetings on how to change the investment strategy in the light of the book. Some of them are sending them to companies that they're investing in and asking the companies, well, are you going to implement the principles? Or if not, why not? And, um, and that's really gratifying. And I think what, what's good about it is it's something where it's not pitching, investors against society, What We typically think, oh, we want to care about workers and the environment, and investors are these evil, greedy people, but in fact, it's showing that um, it works for both. I think the one sort sort of negative thing about the book is that because, it is so collaborative. It doesn't have the same forward momentum as a one-sided book might suggest. So if there was a book saying, yeah, investors are evil, profit is evil, capitalism is broken, that would obviously have a massive sort of support from some people. And if there's another saying equality is, uh, is, is unnecessary, right, we just care about making money, that would have some other support. So here, what I've, I've not faced much in terms of headwinds. So I don't have many people saying to me, oh, I, the, what the book is talking about is, is unrealistic or unimplementable. But there's not as much forward momentum as there might be for something partisan, which is why I really appreciate the gesture that you mentioned, uh, Matt, not just giving me this interview, but also the gesture that you, you mentioned at the start to, to help spread the word. Because I do think it's a way of, in a very partisan society, of helping align both investors and stakeholders to grow the pie for the common good.
0: Well. Oh. When I was doing the research for this and my team were doing the research for this, you, you affected our thinking positively. So uh, delighted one to have you on board, delighted to, to be able to hopefully share um, your hard work with a, with a, with a few people. So, um, but just one, one final thing. So it is a collaborative book. It, it talks about, you know, as you say, you talk about them versus us and you're saying, well, actually, it's not them versus us. It, it, it's all of us have a responsibility uh, for, you know, for positive change, and here are, the, here are the roles that we can play. You've backed it up with data. A lot of hard work has gone into that. I mean, how, many, how, how long does something like this take to put together?
1: Well, the book wasn't actually too long. It was only two years. But why? Because I'd done sort of 15 years of research since my (laughs) PhD at MIT. So it was to crystallize that and then make it accessible in plain English for for a general audience. But also not just it it doesn't just build on my work. It builds on the work of lots and lots of other people. And so it was two years to put this into um, accessible, hopefully engaging language.
0: I think it does that. I think it definitely does that. Um, well, I, I appreciate your time today. Um, you're obviously you're at home and where, where are you in London? You're in London, aren't you?
1: Yeah, in Bayswater. Yeah, Bayswater.
0: Right. Very nice. Very nice. Well, like, I appreciate your time. We'd love to have you back on soon because I saw a fantastic piece that you did on cognitive bias, uh, was what, you know, part of the topic, which is something that, that I think affects all investors and any help we can get, any help that you can give me to unpick my convoluted thinking and convoluted investment thesis, I would, I would appreciate.
1: Well I'd love to talk about that. So if you will have me back, for it, we can do an, another interview on, on that topic, which is a whole topic in, in itself.
0: Oh, I know, I know. Well, thanks again. We'll let you go.
1: Thanks very much, Matt. It was great to be here.
0: Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed the interview, why not subscribe to CruxCast or our website, cruxinvestor.com and of course our YouTube channel, Crux Investor.